We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. We moved ahead um, to uh, to Midrashim on verse uh, chapter two, verse twenty-five, um, which is Vayu uh, Vayu uh, They were both naked. Adam Bishto, the man and his wife, Veloyit Boshashu. They were not uh, embarrassed, um, or they were not ashamed. So last week we talked. There was a set of midrashim um, on the word yidboshashu. Uh, what did it mean that they were not uh, ashamed? And the midrash uh, did sort of like a creative uh, interpretation of that verb uh, to um, to make it a contraction. Of the uh, phrase ba uh, ba sheish or ba ushesh, which means that the uh, sixth hour had come, uh, and talks about how um, uh, there in several instances uh, in which uh, people made terrible moral judgments, um, uh, it uses that phrase ba sheish or, or a version of it, um, and it all is related to. Uh, the time of day. So it talked about Moses uh, at the golden calf. It talked about uh, Sisera, um, a uh, Canaanite uh, general uh, who uh, battled uh, against the judge Deborah uh, and and was was uh, executed by a, a, a female warrior named Yael. Um, and uh, and Adam and Eve um, saying that uh, uh, Adam and Eve. Uh, had, were uh, had fallen before the sixth hour of the day, so before midday. Um, okay, well, we're going to move on uh, a little bit. So we're uh, in, still in the middle of midrash number six for chapter eighteen. It's page nine. Uh, the top of the page just says nine in the packet. Um, <clears throat> So the middle of the first column, it says the Midrash explains scripture's placement of the passage dealing with the serpent. Um, everybody see that? Yeah. Anybody have a yearning to read? Great. All right. Go for it. The Midrash explains scripture's placement of the passage dealing with the serpents, inducing Adam and his wife to eat from the tree of knowledge immediately after this verse. Okay, so this is as the kids say today, this is a spoiler alert, right? Because uh, it's fast forwarding ahead of verse for the uh, of the of the um, uh, the first verse of chapter three, I believe, um, where we're introduced to the serpent and what the what the serpent is and what the serpent does. Um, so it's fast forwarding ahead a little bit to that. Okay, through the drum roll. The verse states, "Now the serpent was clever." Uh, okay, just pause there for a second. Right. If you rem- if you remember the verse that we're looking at, verse twenty five of chapter two, uh, that same Hebrew word is used, but in a different context and presumably with a different meaning. And so it says, "Vayuhu shnehem arumim," that they were both naked, arum. And here uh, we have that same word, "Vahanachash haya arum." The the serpent was arum. Uh, but here it doesn't mean um, naked, or at least contextually, it's not meant to mean naked. Uh, it's taken to mean clever. Okay, so we have same word used uh, for two different characters in two different ways. Now, at this point, the verse should have stated only in Hashem, Hashem God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Why does it interject with the incident of the serpent? Rabbi Yehoshua, I just uh, uh, I, I just want to uh, point out that the that the uh, um, that God making for Adam and his wife garments of skin um, is after the eating from the tree of knowledge, right? So it's 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 actually it, maybe he's proposing um, 
that uh, that that God actually did that before they ate from the tree of knowledge, um, and uh, and that should have come first, and not all the tree of knowledge stuff. Uh, there's a principle I think we mentioned before, of rabbinic exegesis, uh, which uh, says Ein mukdam Torah that there's no before and after in the Torah. Um, in other words, the Torah doesn't always follow, follow a strict chronology. So sometimes we're given uh, narrative in the Torah uh, that uh, that appears, if you follow the like narrative of the Torah, it appears to occur after something that, uh, that occurred beforehand, uh, but it may not, right? So, um, uh, you know, I guess an example of that is... Um, um, oh, okay. So the um, the rabbis are unclear about uh, uh, about where uh, Jethro appears in Exodus chapter uh, eighteen. Uh, Moses' father-in-law says that Jethro heard about all these things, um, and so some rabbis are of the opinion that the things that Jethro heard about are the things that happened previously in the narrative splitting of the Red Sea, plagues in Egypt, all that stuff. Uh, but it is also the, the defeat of Amalek. Uh, but it is also possible, according to some rabbis, that what Jethro heard is actually about the giving of the Torah and the Ten Commandments, and Jethro came after that, even though narratively it's placed before him. Okay, sorry, go ahead. So why does it interject with the incident of the Zorba? Rabbi Yehoshua ben Korban said, it is in order to inform you through what sin that wicked one servant sprang upon them. When he saw them engaging in the way of the land, he desired Eve. By the way, the, the way of the land is euphemistic for sexual intimacy. Okay, another thing that we, uh, I think maybe because of the way uh, popular culture uh, tends to look at the Garden of Eden narrative, um, uh, we presume that uh, that Adam and Eve, or at least there's a sort of like strand of interpretation that presumes that Adam and Eve are not intimate with each other until after they eat from the tree, you know, when they realize that they're naked and they have sort of carnal desire. Um, that's never stated explicitly in the narrative, and, and in fact, you know, when um, uh, when when Eve is created, uh, uh, Adam says, "You know, this one at last is uh, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones," and takes her to be his wife. Um, so it's very possible that they, you know, they sort of immediately consummated their marriage before they ate from the tree of knowledge. So this is actually, uh, but anyway, th- this midrash is is doing a mind game with the chronology uh, of the of the narrative because we, some of us, might have assumed that they only engaged in um, in intimacy after eating from the tree. Some of us may have presumed that they were only given uh, clothing after they realized they were naked after eating from the tree. This Midrash is, is assuming, no, actually, those things all happened beforehand, before they ate from the tree. They were already intimate before they ate from the tree, and they had already been given clothing before they ate from the tree. So when he saw them engaging in the way of the land, he desired he, meaning the servant, desired he. Alternatively, Rabbi Yaakov of Kafar Hanin said, it is so as not to with the passage of the serpent, which is unfavorable, since it mentions God's person, Adam and Eve, and the snake. So you don't want to end the passage with a negative. Right, so in other words, so, you know, why does it put the thing about the skins later on in the narrative? Um, is so that it doesn't end with the curse of Adam and Eve and the serpent, it ends with uh, something, you know, more, more, um, more, more loving and compassionate. Uh, now, uh, I just want, you know, Rabbi Yaakov of Kfarchanin doesn't disagree with the premise of this midrash that God made the clothing for Adam and Eve before they ate from the tree. Um, so it's just sort of like interesting to, you know, it, in other words, you know, there's there's a set of assumptions I think that we have about you know what goes on with the eating of the tree um, and what is the knowledge that it imparts, what's the sin that they uh, take on. Um, I think that you know uh, classically. Um, uh, there's 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 much in Christian theology that, that talks about the the you know um, it points about uh, points out you know the sort of like awareness of their nakedness and and their you know lustfulness. I was teaching about the Book of Job 
last night uh, it, at St. Stephen's Church, uh, and Episcopal Church, and um, and I got asked about original sin and, and the Garden of Eden. Um, and I first said, you know, that, you know, Judaism doesn't really have a concept of original sin in, in the same way, uh, because it, 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 I think, presumes that, you know, it, anything that was sinful about human beings uh, uh, in that uh, uh in, in the sin that the Garden of Eden was already present in human beings before they ate from the tree. The, the, um, you know, the, whatever, rebelliousness, uh, uh, disobedience, um, uh, curiosity, whatever it is, you know, that nothing, uh, it, it, you know, um, that nothing, nothing fundamentally changed about humanity from the eating of the tree um, in the way that, that, Christian theology tends to think of it. But what, just to add here, excuse me, yeah. that is a particularly Western Christian interpretation. Oh, interesting. Who never accepted that. Who never accepted that? Eastern Christians. Oh, interesting. So how do they, they don't, they don't have a concept of original sin. That is correct. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. The words original sin, of course, is packed with a lot. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> it is. What, um, it's packed with a lot, you know, what is original sin? Yeah. Um... Uh, that's it. I actually I didn't know that. I appreciate that. Um, uh, so anyway, uh, but I think that the, that the you know the perception is that the sin has something to do with the with, with the nakedness and, and the lust, um, and uh, and so here um, it I think is sort of rejecting. May not be consciously rejecting it, but it's uh, but but it, but it's a different kind of whatever the sin was. And whatever happened to Adam and Eve after they ate from the tree, um, uh, uh, it wasn't. They didn't realize that they were naked after, just because they ate from the tree, and they didn't engage in intimacy because they ate from the tree. So whatever. So it's actually placing. It's actually making, in some sense, a more uh, a, a more simple equation of what happened. It's sort of the play as as Joe is, is wont to say that the, that the sin is the is. Um, uh, the disobedience of God's command, nothing inherent about eating from the tree. Um, you know, there wasn't the, the, the tree didn't do anything to them that they didn't already have. Um, that's one line of, uh, of interpretation here. Um, it also, at least uh, Rabbi Yeshua ben uh, Korcha's interpretation of this, um, is, that the, uh, is that the serpent, the serpent's motivation here was lust for Eve. Um, which I think is helpful in a way. You know, this is something that Midrash does, uh, which is you know provide kind of like backstory and uh, and, and context and uh, fleshing out of characters and motivations. We don't really know what the snake does, what the serpent does, what he does in the story, right? Uh, you know, so Milton in Paradise Lost uh, has has you know a, a great imagining of of the serpent's motivation. The serpent is. Uh, is, is Satan and is motivated uh, out of rebelliousness toward God and the, the desire to destroy uh, or, or corrupt God's creation, you know, so on. Um, but here, you know, so here they're doing a similar kind of thing, but just a different uh, uh, take on it, which is that the serpent wanted Eve. Now, I don't know, you know, like what was the plan there? I don't know. You know, it's like how did how did the serpent think that uh, uh, getting her to eat from the tree would result in his winning Eve's affections for himself? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it was not that. Maybe it was just if I can't have her, nobody can, kind of thing. You know. What was the serpent like at that point? Right. It's unclear. I, what I I, there, I have this. Um, a comic version of um, of the Book of Genesis by a, a, a graphic artist named um, Robert Crumb. You heard of him? Is it, um, and he, he and he uh, he did a, a, a you know sort of like graphic novel version of, of the Book of Genesis. It's really really interesting and well done. Uh, but he's not a religious person, and uh, what he uh, I, I heard an interview with him that said well, you know what he set out to do. Um, his initial thought was that he wanted to like make a graphic novel that was like very subversive of religion, and then he realized after some time that the most subversive thing that he could do is depict the Book of Genesis as literally as possible. Um, so it becomes like this interesting project, and the, and the way he uh, draws the serpent 
is sort of like a, maybe kind of, if you imagine the Geico gecko in a way, uh, but a little bit more sinister looking, um, and, you know, but standing up on his hind legs and, uh, and, and having uh, legs, that's sort of how he depicts the serpent. If I remember next time, I'll bring up. A picture of it. So anyway, what was the serpent like before the before the tree? I, I, I have no idea. Um, uh, you know, interestingly, you know, we use the word serpent here, uh, but nachash, uh, you know, it, the nachash means it means a snake, right? So um, you know, if, if I'm if I'm like interpreting this now, clearly because God says you're you're going to crawl on your belly after this uh, as a punishment. Um, uh, presumably, that means that the serpent at this point was 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 not walking on, whether it was walking on its hind leg, um, uh, and what the relationship was, you know, sort of proposes a relationship between the Adam and Eve and the other creatures in the garden. You know, were there other creatures in the garden with whom they could have conversations in this way? You know, was did they have this intimate relationship with the other creatures in the garden? Um, it, it does kind of beg that question. Um, we don't know. Uh, according to the commentary here, it's the serpent intended not for Eve to eat from the tree, but for her to get Adam to eat from the tree. So that Adam would die, and then he would have Eve to himself. Right. Old story. Old story. <laughs> Okay. Any any thoughts or comments on this uh, midrash? All right. Well, let's move on a little bit. Let's move on. Okay. Next page, chapter nineteen. Okay. Now it's going to bring in that verse. By the way, it doesn't it doesn't exactly uh, resolve the the uh, textual question about it. Why why does why does the uh, why does Genesis use the same word arum to describe the nakedness of Adam and Eve and arum to describe uh, the serpent's cleverness? Um, you know, or maybe it may, you know, uh, um, you know, may, it, it could very well be, you know, like it's just possible to interpret that passage is, you know, as, you know, you could use, if arum could either mean naked or clever, and I'm not, I have to go back and look at the etymology of the word to see how it could mean both, because those seem like very distinct. Is it in modern Hebrew? Uh, a room is, yeah, a room is naked in modern Hebrew. What does it, mean now? it means naked in modern Hebrew, but I, I don't know if it could also be used to describe some kind of cleverness. So maybe it's, um, you know, like clear, maybe clear thinking or something like that. How are they coming then to that? So, I mean, being naked and being clever, I never associated that. Yeah, no, I understand. That's what I, that's exactly what I'm saying, is that those don't seem to me to be, uh, you know, like uh, uh, thematically linked words uh, or etymologically linked words. Um, if, if, you, if, if, you'll, if you'll bear with me for a second, I'll go up and get a couple of dictionaries to see what they say. But, um, uh, but, it, but what, the point I was going to make is like, okay, you know, uh, plug either of those words into the passages in either ways and see if they see if they change our assumptions about the um, about the uh, about the text, right? So if arum means clever, then maybe what it's saying about uh, Adam and Eve is that they were both byehush nehem arumim. They were both clever. Uh, and they and they had no shame, right? Um, I think that that, that could, that, that certainly works, right? They, you know, they were shrewd. They, they, you know, and, and you could see that sort of like in the, in the conversation that Eve is having with the snake, you know, it's, it's one thing to say, okay, Eve is, Eve is naive and she was duped by the serpent. It's another saying, no, Eve wasn't naive. She, she gained it out. She reasoned it out. You know, but yeah, the, the serpent makes a really good argument because, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, the, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, Adam told me that uh, that that I would die as soon as I eat from it, right? Or that it would kill me if I ate from it. And he's saying it won't kill from you. It won't kill you. That's not what God said. And she says, she said, oh, you know, maybe that's not exactly what God says. Or maybe I misinterpreted it. Or you know, or maybe you know, maybe it doesn't matter or something, right? So anyway, I don't know. Um, I, I'm not sure if it works the other direction, right? So if you say hanachash uh, haya arum. That the, that the serpent was um, was naked, 
if you put it into the length of the verse, he was more naked than any of the other uh, uh, animals of the field. Um, doesn't quite work um, unless it, you know, he means like his sort of motivations are more obvious or something like that. His, his, uh, his, his deeds were more outward. You know, he was more upfront. Um, and bold. He's bolder, maybe. That's another way of putting it, right? He was bolder than other uh, animals in the field. Unobscured, unembellished. Yeah. Um, so that could be, you know, and then put it back for the, for Adnib, right? Uh, is, you know, if they were naked, they were not ashamed, right? As you could still say that for both of them. Like, they, they were bold. They, you know, it didn't matter to them what people thought of them, right? Who um, were the people? <laughs> Well, whatever. It didn't matter what it didn't matter what anybody thought of them. What anything thought of them. Um, uh, that's, I mean, that, that's that's certainly true. I and mean, it's sort of easy to not be ashamed when there's nobody else around. Um, um, yeah, that's a that's a good point. Uh, if you'll uh, if you'll indulge me for a second, let me go get a couple of dictionaries really quickly, and I'll uh, I'll see what they have to say about that about that word. Give me one second. Yeah, that's interesting. I have to look and see. Uh, um, I mean, 
it, it must it must be because of the context that people uh, translated as. Um, Is it from nakedness? That's interesting. Naked Ara. Um, why would it be Arumi? Is it a different meaning than the plural? No, it's just so interesting. So, um, so the, the, the term, the, the Hebrew word for, that, for naked is a different root, is ara, ayin resh he, and not aram, ayin resh mem. Um, and so, presumably, when it says that shnehem, the yu shnehem arumim, it's, it's, uh, it's a version of the verb that means naked. But it's but I don't understand why. Hmm. I'm looking for I'm looking for a reference to our verse here. It's Genesis chapter two, right? Genesis chapter two. Genesis chapter twenty four a bunch of times. Very interesting. I am not sure. Yeah, I'm gonna have to talk to Zachary about that. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a deep dive in this later. Um, uh, let me just look at this. Is um, the um, uh, the Evan Shoshan Hebrew uh, dictionary? So. Dictionary, but it's um, uh, but it's uh, it's 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 got it's it's a Hebrew Hebrew dictionary, so it's a it, it's got more sort of like yeah, um, 
and it gives like references as to where like the you know words are used or come from in other places for context. Um, very interesting. Okay, all right. Well, we're going to move on from that. This is chapter. This is chapter nineteen of Midrash Genesis Rabbah. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, we're in ver- we're now in chapter three, verse one, right? Because um, the chapters here don't follow um, uh, don't don't follow the chapters in Genesis. They they follow you know kind of like uh, units of text in the midrash. Sometimes that corresponds to uh, you know like a new unit will start with a new verse. Sometimes, not always. Um, uh, and and for the most part, I'm pretty sure I'm going to have to go back and look at this. But for the most part, I think. The chapters are not original to the text. Um, they were added later for like ease of reference. Um, okay, all right. So we're, we're we're now moving on though to verse one of chapter three, which we've already alluded to. So the the serpent was more clever than any of the uh, beasts of the field. Asher asad Elohim that uh, that the Lord God had made. Vayomer el ha'isha, af ki amar Elohim lotochlu mikol eitz hagan. So he said to the to the woman, um, uh, 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 "Did God really say to you that you should not eat from any tree of the garden?" And now, obviously, God didn't say that to uh, Adam and Eve. They just said God actually said the opposite of that. You can eat from any tree in the garden except for one. So the serpent is sort of like, you know, creating a clever uh, uh, logical argument, right? That, you know, she'll, she'll go back and say, no, we can eat from any tree except for, except for that one. And, you know, he'll say, well, okay, why not that one? She'll say, I don't know, um, right? So anyway, um, okay. Uh, Harry, you want to keep reading or somebody else want to? All right, Harry, you're doing a good job. Keep going. Now the serpent was clever beyond any. God had made. The Midrash cites and expands a verse from Ecclesiastes, which will ultimately relate to our verse, hopefully. It is written, for with much wisdom comes much anger, and he who adds knowledge adds pain. This means through that which a person increases wisdom for himself, he increases anger for himself, and through that which he The Midrash cites several examples of the above. King Solomon, who authored the book of Ecclesiastes, was saying, Through that which I increased wisdom for myself, I increased the anger of God upon myself. And through that which I added knowledge for myself, I added pain to myself. Another example of the latter statement from reverse, that one's added knowledge can cause an added pain. Have you ever in your days heard one say, this donkey was affected by the cold? Or, so many blisters have come upon it. Certainly not. Animals are not affected by the elements. But where indeed is suffering found? It is found in coming upon people. For they are expected to guard their health since they possess a higher level of intelligence than animals. Another example of the former statement of the verse that one who increases wisdom for himself increases anger upon himself. Rob said a Torah scholar does not need a warning in order to be punished for transgression. Hence, his increased knowledge can be a source of anger against him. Let's pause there for a minute. Thoughts about any of this? That's also true. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, the last part. I, I mean, I, listen. I, cer- I, I certainly uh, feel the uh, uh, the knowledge thing, right? That the one who adds knowledge adds pain, right? It's sort of the opposite of saying ignorance is bliss. Um, but what about the wis- with, with with much wisdom comes much anger? That's more open ended. But if you have wisdom, you presumably. Know the ways things should be, and when they're less than you believe they ought to be, that it 
anger. You're surrounded by people with less wisdom. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because I usually associate wisdom with serenity. Well, you could have the serenity. You could be serene in the sense that you think, at least, that you understand things better, you figure things out better, you know the big picture. Um, but, but still, you have the burden of knowing that. And it goes on here, it says something different. Yeah, this kind of reminds me of criminal law. <laughs> uh-huh. Why? Oh, there are many things in criminal law here. I mean, if you know something, well, uh, we hold people to different standards by what they know, what they're expected to know. Mm-hmm. I'm a lawyer. If I perjure myself in a court and I am punished for that, I am likely to receive a much higher sentence than a person who's not a lawyer. Why? I'm supposed to know better. Right. So if you know better, like the warning, you know, if you're warned, knowledge I have is it sets a warning to me Right. what you're doing is wrong. So when we have someone in office and they betray a public trust, they're supposed to know better and slam them. Hypothetically. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um. Yeah, how it works out is another one. I don't know how it out that way, but that's the wrong thing. Theoretically, yeah. Right. <laughs> uh. Uh. Like the kids are now saying judgy. Judgy? judgy. That's the word, judgy. So the, in other words, the, the wisdom comes anger, uh, or as you would phrase it as, with, with much wisdom comes, comes much judginess. Yeah. 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 Maybe the anger is not so much you have the anger, it's other people have the anger against you because you have the wisdom. Is yeah, what saying, or are they saying? I, I, think it's, I think that's certainly a way of interpreting it. If you look in the, in the notes... Um, uh, it actually, well, it says the opposite, but I think you could certainly read it that way. So he says, you're one who increases wisdom, thereby increases his own anger against others. Um, but I think that you certainly could read it that way, right? That, uh, that, that, uh, that people become, you know, uh, angry about the, you know, the, the know-it-all, right? Um, although it does, uh, distinguish between knowledge and wisdom. Uh, you know, uh, King Solomon, and it's not really King Solomon, but the, the book of Ecclesiastes um, uh, talks about um, uh, that, you know, um, uh, I, I, when I increased wisdom for myself, um, uh, God's anger increased over me. Yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, um So the sages teach, according to the notes, that King Solomon, confident that his wisdom would protect him, disregarded certain prohibitions from uh, from Deuteronomy about the, a king's conduct. However, his wisdom did not protect him, and he ultimately succumbed to sin. So this is sort of like the you know the, the hubris of what of, of about his own about his own wisdom, right? That uh, that um, you know. Because because I'm so wise, um, I don't need to adhere. You know, I don't need to remind myself of the of the commandment uh, that that's that's there to you know take special precautions so as not to sin. Um, although that you know it's sort of paradoxical because that strikes me as inherently unwise. Um, so um, I'm not so sure about that. Um, anyway, um, maybe it's all you're saying just because you, you know something. Maybe just because you know you shouldn't do something, like not so, um, doesn't mean that you have the wisdom to follow what you know. Or to turn it around, someone may think that this, this is all from the perspective of the, of the it, the person. Um, one might think that they have a Right, really, there are. Oh, yeah. Very smart people. Who used to say that, Barthi? What little 
well because if we thought they've got the intelligence to be a really terrific right. criminal. That's interesting. Like, you know, I, and I know people like that. I know people, I, I was talking to the deer about this last night, that you know, there, there's this individual that we, that we know and love uh, who we say is you know the, the dumbest smart person we've ever met. Yeah, I've always been. When, when I get We're the smartest dumb person ever. Yeah. I actually get involved. I love to get involved with complicated financial transactions because to me it was just a huge puzzle. But when you finally put all the pieces together and you sit there and just realize how much thought and effort. Diving went into creating it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you needed a lot of smart to do that. Well, look at that guy. I forgot his name. Excuse me. He's in prison now. Bernie Madoff? Yeah, that's the guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, look at that. It went on for years and years right. and years. And, and he must have thought at some point, you know, eventually I'll be caught, or maybe I'll die before I'm caught. I'm going to be caught. But, I mean, all the energy and everything he put into that. Mm-hmm. Surely he knew better. Um, all right, let's let's keep going a little bit so we can uh, um, try to make sure we get to the punchline of this of this midrash. Punchline. All right, uh, the midrash presents several analogies to illustrate why a Torah scholar is judged more stringently for his sins than his ordinary person or a lawyer. Um, Rabbi Yochanan said, "It is like the fine linen garments that come from Beth Shein. If they become blackened even slightly, they are." Ruined. But with regard to the coarse linen garments that come from Arbel, how much are they worth and what is their value? Therefore, if they are slightly blackened, they are not ruined. Similarly, a sin committed by a scholar is worse than one committed by an ordinary person. And the, the scholar of the fine linen garments. Yeah, please. Another analogy, Rabbi Yishmael taught, according to the size and strength of a camel, so is its burden. Similarly, a person is held accountable for his actions in accordance with his stature. A third analogy, according to the usual practice, I would say ought to be held accountable for his actions in accordance with his stature. Yeah, we're not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're through the looking glass now, so. <laughs> I think we turned the looking glass at the window. <laughs> A third analogy, according to the usual practice of the world, two people were enter a food shop. One person says, bring me roasted meat, bread made of refined flour and good wine. And the other one says, bring me bread made of coarse flour and beets. <laughs> it is common that the former eats and is harmed, and the latter eats and is not harmed. Thus for the former... The better meal was detrimental, for he had a weak constitution. <laughs> Whereas for the latter, even the inferior meal was not detrimental, for he had a stronger constitution. Similarly, an, an inadvertent sin committed by a scholar is punished even more severely than an intentional sin committed by an ignorant person. All right, that's uh, that's that's also you. Sorry, Harry. Go ahead. Also, that's all kind. That's all kind of a a, a tangent, right? Uh, It's sort of an aside, a little moralistic aside about um, how uh, uh, how how scholars are um, are are more accountable for transgressions than than uh, ignorant people. So the midrash relates its exposition of the the Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, Mm -hmm. thank you, verse to our verse. It was taught in the name of Rabbi Meir. Proportionate to the greatness of the serpent was his downfall. Proportionate to the greatness of the serpent. In other words, in other words, uh, uh, the the, uh, the the serpent's uh, downfall was uh, uh, was you know dr- inversely proportional, directly proportional, whatever it was proportional to how exalted the serpent was. Right. So the you know the, the serpent was you know like the Torah scholar. Right. He should have known better. Right and uh, and because he should have known better, uh, uh, he's he's punished more severely. Because, as our verse states, 
later became a curse beyond any beast. Thus, we see that his wisdom was the cause of his downfall. The Midrash discusses the statement, the serpent was clever. Rabbi Hoshaya the Great said he was ruler of the animal kingdom. Furthermore, he stood erect like a reed, and he had feet like a human. Rabbi Yeremia ben Elazar said he was a heretic. Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar said he was like a camel, capable of carrying and transporting heavy loads. By cursing the serpent, much good was depri- was deprived from the world. For if not for this, a person would send merchandise with a serpent, and it would travel to its destination and return on its own. All right, so what, what, what did you find out about that? I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> okay, so there's actually the 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 this, the last paragraph that you just read is is something of a of a of a uh, a different conversation than the conversation we were having previously. Right, the conversation we were having previously is um, is about you know what does it mean that he was. Arum Mikol Chayat Hasadeh, that he was more clever than any of the uh, creatures in the garden. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, again, uh, the Torah, uh, the, uh, the principle of, of rabbinic uh, exegesis is the Torah doesn't use um, unnecessary language, right? So it could have just said that the serpent was clever, right? If it wanted to say something about its cleverness, right? but it, it compares him to all the other animals. Right. So first of all, I don't really know what that means because it doesn't seem like many animals are all that particularly clever. Um, but uh, but but anyway, why is it why does it compare it to other animals? Why does it say it was you know higher than all the other animals? Um, and, uh, and 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 the answer that this midrash gives anyway is that uh, is that it's trying to show us um, uh, 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 why the serpent's punishment was so severe. Um, and why, um, because you'd think, you know, like if, if an animal tricks a human being, right, the human being's punishment should be severe, but not necessarily the animal's. Um, this uh, isn't any ordinary animal. Clearly, clearly it's not, right? So they're, but I think that they're emphasizing that. Yeah. Sense, right, right there, you know, it's not any ordinary animal, so it, so it shouldn't be treated like any ordinary animal. Then the, so in, in that sense, the next draft is related because it's talking about how it was not an ordinary animal, right? And so um, here, here are the various opinions about uh, uh, you know uh, what what this meant about the serpent's character, uh, uniqueness, and, and relationship to the other animals. So one opinion is that he was uh, the the king of the beasts, um, right? Because he was smarter than everybody, he he ruled over them. Um, another is that uh, that he, uh, which is just sort of a you know interesting uh, observation. Um, you know, it's sort of like the knowledge is power argument. I don't know how many of you watched. Do you watch Game of Thrones? Uh, so uh, there's this great. You know the premise though of Game of Thrones. It's just like a fan. Okay, it's a. Uh, um, My daughter watches it. <laughs> man. Um, uh, so it's um, it's it's you know it's a, a fantasy story in a sense, like kind of in the vein of Lord of the Rings, um, but um, uh, but less uh, uh, less magical or less magic forward. There's still magic in it, but it's less magic forward, um, and it's more about kind of like. The, uh, the the real politic of uh, this you know medieval fantasy world um, and the fight over who gets to be the ruler of the seven kingdoms um, and there's one great scene where this there's this uh, character named uh, um, uh, Littlefinger Peter Baelish and uh, he's kind of like the serpent. He's like very shrewd and very clever. He's very cunning. He like likes to play the political game and, uh, and whatever. And then there's uh, another character who's who's almost who's become kind of like the chief villain in the series uh, or in the books. I didn't read the books, but I'm watching the series. Her name is uh, Cersei Lannister, and uh, and she uh, and she kind of like her take on uh, on on ruling and her kind of lane in the in the battle for the kingdoms is that she's, she's, she, she rules with like fear and brutality. 
that's her that's her approach. She doesn't care what people think about her, right? All she cares about is is power. And so Littlefinger says to her once, he says, knowledge is power. And he's trying to like blackmail her about something he knows about her and says knowledge is power. And she uh, like just motions to her guards to like point their spears at him, at his throat. And she goes to him, power is power. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, so here, anyway, uh, that's sort of aside, but here, anyway, is, is uh, I guess, you know, of the opinion that, that, at least with respect to the animal kingdom, that knowledge is power. Um, which I think is actually, in some sense, meant to be a statement about human beings, right? That sometimes it's not it's not the most brutal of leaders. Uh, um, uh, it's not even the smartest leaders, but the shrewdest of leaders um, who is the one who gets to be in charge. Um, if you can be cunning then in, 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 and manipulative, right, then you can get to be in charge. Um, so anyway, that's one opinion. Another opinion is, is, uh, is you know, uh, uh, the, what was unique about the servant is uh, that he was, uh, he was an upright animal. Uh, that, you know, that, that you know, no other animals uh, spend their lives walking upright except for humans. Um, and he was a human. So, uh, maybe he was. Well, certainly, Rabbi Yirmiya ben Elazar said he was a heretic, right? Now, the only people who are typically described by, as heretics in rabbinic literature are human beings. I've never heard them talk about an animal like uh, as a heretic. I don't know what that would mean. So they, they certainly uh, uh, see this serpent um, as, having, um, as having human characteristics, um, uh, if not, it, you know, being more like a human than like an animal in the first place. Um, you know, the notion of him being a heretic is, is a really interesting one. A heretic in, in rabbinic literature is somebody who um, uh, either rejects God's sovereignty um, or, uh, uh, or argues that there is, that there's, you know, that, 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 that sort of rejects um, the notion that there's only one power in the cosmos. Right, so um, you know the the, um, the classic rabbinic uh, um, heretic is um, is Elisha ben Abuya, uh, and Elisha ben Abuya's uh, sin was saying that uh, perhaps there are two dominions. Right, so Elisha uh, ben Abuya is a, uh, a rabbi who is uh, discussed in the Talmud and uh, tractates um, Chagiga. Uh, uh, he's one of the uh, four rabbis who, uh, uh, or one of the three rabbis who ascend uh, to heaven with uh, Rabbi Akiva, um, and um, and in his in, in their kind of you know field trip to heaven, um, he sees an angel, um, uh, uh, like one of the chief angels, um, uh, judging, uh, sitting in judgment over people, and he. Uh, and he sees this and assumes that this angel uh, is a um, uh, is a sort of like co-equal power to God in heaven. Um, uh, you know, so I, mean, I was actually talking about this a lot. You know, it, it would, that's as a driven leaf. Now, as a driven leaf, uh, dramatizes the 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 story a little bit differently, but but essentially. Uh, um, Still has Alicia. He's more of a questioner of God than an, an open apostate. Um, but his questioning of God uh, is is sort of based on um, on the problem of evil, in a sense, right? Is you know, is like why do bad things happen to good people? Um, which is, I think, a, a, you know, another opening to say that there are two powers. I was talking about this with with the, with the people at Saint Stephen's last night about Job. Is that the you know the, um, uh, the the problem of when bad things happen to good people is a challenge of monotheism, right? It's, it's sort of easy to explain why bad things happen to good people if you have more than one god, right? Um, and you say that you know the god of evil did that to them, uh, and you know the god of good either didn't stop it or couldn't stop it or whatever it is, right? But if you have one god that's presumably in control of everything, and how do you and that god is just or good or righteous or whatever it is. Passionate, um, then, uh, then, then how do you explain when bad things happen to good people, right? So I think that you know, in some sense, that's actually that that is the the nature of the apostasy in Asadur and Leaf too um, uh, is this this kind of 
inclination that Alicia Benabuya has to 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 think that there might be more than one divine power. Dual, uh, dualism. Dualism. Yeah. He said Alicia Ben. What's his Abuya. Abuya. A b u y a. I guess. Alf bet vav yud hey. What? Uh, I think it could be either. I mean, um, I don't remember how uh, Steinberg uh, transliterates it. Aleph, Bet, Vav, Yud, Hey. Um, uh, and, um, you know, I mean, interestingly, and I don't know enough about uh, uh, this uh, aspect of, uh, of Greek philosophy, but the, the, the rabbinic term for heretic is uh, Epicurus. Right? So an Epicurean. So if anybody knows something about Epicureanism, uh, you could share it with us here. Um, but that's the that's that that's the rabbinic term for for a heresy. It's a Hebrew term. It's a Greek term, but it's written out in the Hebrew. Is Epicoros? It's a you know Epi, Epicurean. Um, now you know. It's, I mean, but again, it's just like interesting to describe the serpent that way. That he was a heretic. Um, in the commentary here, it says the, the, uh, the Midrash below, uh, states that the serpent told the woman that God had eaten from the tree of knowledge and thereby created the world. Accordingly, he must have denied creation ex nihilo since according to his reasoning, God could not have created the tree as he created the world only after eating from the tree. Uh, I have to go back and look at that Midrash. Um, uh, I, I'm not certain that that's the uh, general rabbinic definition of, of, of heretic is, is the denial of, of creation ex nihilo. Um, uh, because even, you know, first of all, creation ex nihilo is not, um, uh, you know, creation ex nihilo, I mean, creation from nothing. Right. Um, uh, so uh, it's, it's not, it's certainly not stated explicitly in the Torah that God created the world from nothing. Um, there is a strand of, uh, of Jewish philosophy that makes that argument, but it's largely uh, based on, um, on Aristotelianism. Uh, and Maimonides uh, doesn't doesn't say uh, uh, doesn't say that there's uh, that there's no creation ex nihilo. He he assumes that that's what Judaism believes, uh, but also says if we ever would ever find uh, evidence that that God didn't create the world from nothing, it wouldn't be a heresy to say that God didn't create the world from nothing. Um, so, uh, so I'm not, anyway, I'm, I'm sort of skeptical that that's what, uh, that that's what, what is mean. nothing. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Um, uh, well, but certainly I guess anybody's definition of nothing would, uh, couldn't include a tree of knowledge. Right, because that who created the tree. I mean, the, the problem of God creating the world from something is that who created the something, right? Um, You're back to the same question. And also who created, <laughs> and also and also what created God? Well, then we're back to the attributes of God, right? Um, I swear to God, we need to put a six pack in this. <laughs> I like that idea. <laughs> no, this is. Um, I think that one of the things the rabbis always, the whole train of Jewish thought, uh, fight against is the idea of dualism. And the whole concept, and that's related to monotheism. Mm -hmm. Because if you have more than one God, then you really don't have a God. Right. At least you don't have a God in the monotheistic sense, right. obviously. Um, how could, with the attributes we give God, how could other gods exist? Something may exist, but they wouldn't be gods. They would not be on, on par. And apparently, this heretic mentioned Elisha. Um, that's what he was. I think it's a good example from what you said of, of uh, the dualism. He sees a dual. Uh, you keep to his thought of right. dualism right. because he sees someone who is judging an angel. Right, right. Um, and, I, and I think the other dimension of Epicureanism is that it um, uh, is that it, it 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 suggests, in a sense, that um, uh, that there's that there's ultimately no purpose in life. Right, that uh, that that life is sort of you, you should you should uh, enjoy life while you have it, 
um, uh, because you know your faith isn't going to save you and your wisdom isn't going to save you. And um, I mean, uh, but you know, we have actually uh, texts like that in in Jewish tradition too, and a whole book of Ecclesiastes is like that. Um, so that, and moving on from that, I just like the uh, the the end here that uh, that he was not only was he like a camel, but he was like he was a smart camel, right? So he would like take your load for you uh, by himself, and then and then bring it back. He was like a Roomba, right? He was like uh, he'd, like do your job for you, and then like go back to go back to base. Uh, and you know, it's a shame that all of this transpired because now we don't have that kind of uh, load bearing animal. Um, <laughs> yeah, just that, yeah, are like snuck that in. Um, uh, uh, you know, of, like he must have been having like a bad day with his camels that day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like the camel, he, like, the camel ran away. I mean, <laughs>